right. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Second Peter this morning as we continue through a series that we began last week in the book of Second Peter going verse by verse. And we made it through four verses. So if you weren't here last week, you didn't miss a lot. Uh, you, might, you might have missed a light show in case you heard about that. But um, we are uh, this morning picking up where we left off verse 5 in chapter 1 of Second Peter. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and give you some good news, some exciting news for our church. As many of you know, our personnel uh, committee has been on, on a personnel journey over the last year. They've, uh, they've hired various positions in the church, and, and honestly, I'd like to thank our personnel committee for their hard work. They have probably met around 30 times in the last year. They've met often, they've met sporadically, uh, and it's been, it's been a labor of love. I'd like to say it's a labor of love. Maybe it was a, just a labor in some instances, but... Uh, over the last year, they've hired three positions. They hired Matt as our family minister's pastor, or associate pastor of the church. They've hired Nate, our student pastor, as he's come on. They hired Dan Sively as he took Glenn's spot in maintenance. And uh, there's still one position that is yet to be filled. And this position really wears multiple hats and holds multiple responsibilities consisting of both children's ministries and women's ministries. And so that is why we as the elders, I speak on behalf of the elders, with the affirmation from our personnel committee, who serves as a microcosm of our congregation, have come to see that the immediate need for our church is to fill these roles with interim positions as we look to resume a search in 2024. And so having been selected by our elders and affirmed by our personnel committee, I would like to present to you uh, our interim Children's Director Lauren Landry and our Interim Women's Director Yonette Davies for one year. Uh, these positions uh, will move to a congregational affirmation once they are uh, fully hired, and so there's no need for that. But this morning, uh, we, are, we are excited because this marks a point in our church where we can officially uh, move on and really begin to make some headway in some areas that, that need to be filled. And so if you see Lauren this morning, or if you see Yonette this morning, uh, make sure you give them a hug around the neck and thank them for stepping into these roles. And so uh, we are excited about that as a church. So I'm going to go ahead and thank them for uh, stepping in. They did say, I don't want any pictures. I don't want to have to stand. I don't want any of that. So I, I did avoid all that. So uh, as you're there, Second Peter chapter 1, I would like to go ahead and read the first four verses again and then kind of pick up where we left off. So I'm going to read the first four, kind of get everybody on the same page. Uh, Peter, the apostle, the disciple, he's writing this letter to a church that is facing apostasy. They're facing all kinds of trials and issues in the church, and he's really writing to strengthen his brothers. So this is Peter. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful 
desire. Let's stop right there. You have obtained a faith. As we pointed out last week here, Peter says, look, you've obtained a faith. This in the Greek means received by a lot, and it is of equal value of that of the disciples. So just as the disciples were called to follow Jesus, you and I both now have been called. We have received this calling. And so now he's going to move into verse 5 saying, since you've been called, since you've been saved, supplement your faith. Because God gives faith, because of his grace and his mercy, we now see that as a gift in which we act on. So let me put it to you this way. If you were to receive a check, a million-dollar check, it came to you anonymous. It's not for anything that you've done. It's not anything that you've worked for. You were just given this million-dollar check. And so for, in order for you to receive the funds from this check, there's something that you must do. Am I right? You must endorse the back of the check. You must sign your name on it. But you can't say that that signing is any work of your own. You can't say that you did anything that was worthy of the million dollars. You just simply, through this action, received the gift. This is faith. That through faith, the instrument that God gave you, that you are, you are now enabled to receive a gift of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. And so, as Peter writes this, he's saying, listen, if you've been a person who has obtained of faith. If you are called, if you are saved, you've been given a source. I, I went over this last week. You've been given a source. You've been given his divine power. He has now given you everything you need to live a life of godliness. He's now given you a purpose. Your purpose is godliness. Your purpose is to glorify God with everything that is in you. So not only have you been given the power, you've been given the purpose, and now you have the means by which you can do that. That is a knowledge of Jesus Christ. As you grow in your relationship with him, as you abide in that relationship, a relational aspect here, as you grow in that, you then see results. And the result is, is that he begins to produce in you something you could not produce on your own. It's a fruitfulness by partaking in the divine nature. Because he's given you all these things, now you begin to see that salvation is changing your life. And so then you receive a reward. That reward, yes, one day is the fact that you will be completely separated from the presence of sin. But day to day, through the sanctification of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells you, you're being saved from the power of sin in your life. The things that used to torment me, I no longer find them as enticing as I once did. There's, there is a result that is taking place because of the divine nature that has been given. So this kind of gets us caught up here. And now we move into a different set of verses. Very difficult. John MacArthur says this. We have in verses 3 and 4 indicated that we have everything we need in Christ. And yet, in verses 5 to 11, Peter says we have to do everything that we possibly can to add to what Christ has done and then we might experience certainty. That's quite a paradox. Verses 3 and 4 says, you have everything in Christ. Verses 5 to 11 says, now add to it. How can you add to everything? That, again, is that marvelous paradox of being complete in Christ and yet having to do everything within our strength to follow him. And so we find then, verses 5 through 11, give us the path to assurance. Let me ask you today, do you have assurance of your salvation? I, I had a friend this week, as we were having a conversation, a dear friend of mine says that when, when it became real to him, it was a message from a, from a guy who said, do you know that you know that you know? Let me ask you that today. Do you know? Do you know that you know? Is there assurance in your life? Well, this is why Peter writes verses 5 through 11 that you would have assurance. 
of what God has done in your life. So let's read verses 5 through uh, 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. Let's stop right there. What are the things that we learn from this? Well, Dr. Jack Arnold says what he wants us to learn are five things here. Peter wants us to understand that intellectual Christianity can never become a substitute for moral application. Listen, our Christian intellect, what we know, can never be a substitute for moral application in the life of a believer. He, he says, because those who have divine life will manifest that life to some degree. If you truly have received the power of God unto godliness, it will, it will work its way out in your life in some form or fashion. So second, if you're a person who professes to be a Christian but does not have any evidence of divine life, then divine life is not there, indicating that person is not saved. So if there's been no life change since your confession, since maybe praying a prayer, if all that has done is caused you to sit in a pew, if there's been no change in your life, then you would have to say, is there divine power producing godliness in my life? Thirdly, he would say God chooses people to salvation that they might produce changed life. There is a purpose behind your salvation. The purpose is to glorify God. It is to be one who walks in godliness. So fourth, we Christians are to make every effort to progress in our Christian lives, and, this, and in this way, we demonstrate the fact that we have been elected or called. So we are to put forth effort in the progress of godliness. And finally, he says, God expects progress and improvement, not perfection in our Christian lives. And, and listen, I know that some of us, we, we've been raised maybe in Christian homes, or maybe uh, Christian denominations that, that put weights on us of perfection. You better perform this way. You better do this. You better act this way. And if you don't, maybe you're not saved. That is not what this message is today. This is just for you to, to know that you know that you know that he called you when you did nothing to deserve it. And now he's working in and through you to produce a godliness that you're incapable of producing on your own. And so when you see the evidences of that in your life, you have assurance that he has called you from death to life. So, we grow in Christ by faith and by supplementing our faith. So, we grow in Christ by supplementing our faith. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort. Again, let me, let me say this. I'm going to sound like a little bit of a broken record because our default is to think works-based, and that is not what Scripture teaches. So, I'm going to try to avoid us being works-based at any and all uh, degrees here. You don't work for salvation. You don't work for it. You work from salvation. You work from what God has done in your life, so you pursue godliness. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you work not for salvation, but from salvation. Because of what he's done in your life, that produces in you good works. So salvation is not by works. It's not by works. It's not 
by earning. You can never do enough good to outweigh the bad. And yet, that is sometimes our theology. Well, I need to make up for what I did, so I'm going to try to do, do better. And that becomes, as one pastor calls, a doo-doo religion, where you do this and you do this and you do this because it's, you know, it's all about doing stuff, and that's not what Christ has called us to. So salvation is a free gift to those who are called and those who are chosen. So where's the rub? The rub is between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. What must I do? Well, you must do nothing to be saved, but you must do something in the pursuit of godliness. So God's sovereignty and our calling to salvation does not eliminate our responsibility to participate in a life of sanctification. It does not eliminate our responsibility. So Peter would distinguish our growth and godliness in two areas. Number one, God's calling. God's calling is, is essential. It's, it's, it's the main point. God has called you out of darkness into light. He's called you from death to life. Without God's calling, you would not be able to live a life of godliness. He has given you all things that are needed for a life of godliness. So therefore, God's calling, salvation is a gift of God through faith. But then, our cooperation. Sanctification is a life of faith and godliness empowered by God in cooperation with the effort of man. Cooperating. As Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what he's saying is because you received Christ, because you received salvation, now work it out. Exercise your faith with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to both to will to want to, and to be able to produce. It is God working in the life of a believer. So what can we learn? We can learn this is pretty easy. Godliness doesn't just happen. It, it doesn't, it's not going to just happen because you prayed a prayer and then you sit in a pew. There has to be some kind of cooperation that takes place in the life of a believer. So he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort to make haste is what it means. Be eager, give diligence, to do one's best, to take care, to exert oneself. Let me ask you real quick, are you making every effort? Are you giving your best effort towards godliness? Wow, that's what Peter says. Like, because Christ has done this, because you have received Christ, because you have this calling on your life, make every effort. We are given everything we need in Christ to live a life of godliness through his divine power, and yet it takes everything we have to follow through, doesn't it? God has established his everlasting covenant with believers, and believers are to respond to that everlasting covenant with obedience. Because we have victory in Christ over sin, we're called to give maximum effort to avoid sin at all costs. Have you ever been whitewater rafting? I remember the first time my dad, he decided this would be a great uh, weekend adventure. I, I was raised in a, in a split home. My dad uh, moved off, and so I was raised by a single mom and a, a teenage sister, and so that's why I am the way that I am. But my dad would get me on weekends, and he was like, this time we're going to do something awesome. We're going to do something fun. And he had this makeshift blow-up uh, raft that he had gotten, and he decided it would be fun for us to go down the Nantahala because Evidently, he thought he could be a guide, and so we did, and like by the end of the 
the rapids, like the bottom of the boat was ripping out from all the rocks, and it was just fear and trembling, really, is what was going on. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been whitewater rafting since then. Uh, growing up in the area, Okoye River being right there, I've had so many friends that were guides. It was just kind of like every year you wound up getting on the river. And when you get on the river, the guide is going to tell you to do something as soon as you put the boat in. Because as soon as you put the boat in, there's some pretty major rapids that are coming. And he's going to say, I'm going to need you to paddle, and I'm going to need you to paddle hard, because if we don't hit this rapid the right way, we're all going in, right? You ever, you ever been there? And so he's like, I need you to make every effort at this point. I need you to make haste. I need you to put forth your best effort, and I need you to paddle, because if you don't paddle, we could all be in trouble. Well, this is what I see as the illustration for what Peter's saying. Listen, you might be saved, and you might be on life's path, life's river, and you might make the end one way or another. The question is, are you going to paddle hard towards godliness, or are you going to sit back and let it throw you from the boat, and you take all the hits and bumps all the way down the road, all the way down the path? Because there's some times where we could look at our life and we say, you know what, I really, I could have avoided this had at that point in my life I've been pursuing godliness. But I had become lax. I had become comfortable with the sins that were around me and in my life. And I had, really, I had let down my guard and I was just coasting through Christianity and I was not making every effort to pursue godliness. Has that ever been you? It's certainly been me. Supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. As Peter gives these seven areas that we are to pursue and add to or make every effort towards, they really come in a linked chain. It's, it's like if you pursue this one, then it'll lead to this one. And if you lead to this one, then it'll lead to this one. And so we kind of see that they're, they're leading us. So if the seven areas are linked, we begin to have active faith. And our active faith will produce virtue or moral excellence. And active moral excellence then leads to knowledge, a knowledge that is discerning of the will of God. And as we are working towards a knowledge that... Uh, discerns the will of God from the word of God, we, we begin to see self-control take place in our life. And as self-control becomes active, it leads to steadfastness in our life. And as steadfastness leads to godliness, that godliness then leads to how we treat others, brotherly affection, and ultimately agape love, a, a Christ-like love. So if, if you lack one of these areas, it's, it's easy for us to go back the chain and say, okay, well, if this is where I feel the break, then, then where am I missing something? So let's say an easy one, I, I lack self-control. Well, right now, I lack self-control, and so I need to look back and see where the break is. Well, is the break in my discerning of the will of God? Have I failed to grow in my knowledge of what God requires of me? And so there's no self-control in my life. Or is it the fact that I'm not pursuing moral excellence in, in, uh, in that area of my life? And so since I'm not pursuing moral excellence, I'm seeing that I'm not growing in my relationship with the Lord, and therefore I have no self-control in my life. You see how they kind of link together? And so we can look and say, all right, I must be needing to supplement my faith with virtue, moral excellence. The Greek here really means to fulfill one's purpose. When a Christian lives a life which brings glory to God, he is fulfilling his purpose. Moral excellence has to do with excelling 
and the moral will of God. So moral excellence is pursuing Christ. But it's also not just the avoidance of sin, it's the pursuit of Christ-centered characters, attitudes, priorities, goals, and purposes, and devotions. So virtue is not just what you avoid that produces that in you, it's what you pursue. It's what you paddle towards that helps these things come out. So knowledge, knowledge is growing. Knowledge is that uh, constant discerning. It's the knowledge of the word of God that is applied to the life of the believer. As Paul would say in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. He was saying Colossians 1.9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you would grow in your knowledge of his will. And so Ephesians 5.17, therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If you're not making an effort to paddle harder towards the word of God, you will not be in tune with the will of God. If you're not making ever, every effort in your life to paddle towards the word of God, you will fail to discern the will of God in your life. You will begin to follow your own emotions, which would lead to a lack of self-control. So self-control, holding your passions and desires in check or mastering one's emotions rather than being controlled by them. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. If you lack self-control, spiritually speaking, your defenses are down and the enemy is going to come in and wreak havoc on you. If you're someone who is lacking self-control, you're setting yourself up for moral failure. And you can't have that without discipline. And you can't have discipline without discipleship. If you aren't being discipled, you aren't serious about discipline. So what emotion, what passion, what desire in your life has been left uncontrolled? And has caused you to become stagnant or even degenerate in your faith walk. It leads to steadfastness. Self-control leads to steadfastness, perseverance, or literally it means abiding under. Self-control has to do with standing against the pleasures of life, while perseverance relates to standing against the pressures and the problems of life. Patience in affliction. It doesn't mean the patience which sits down and accepts things, but the patience that masters them. Don't give up. And don't be discouraged in your faith or question your faith in times of trials. This is why James would write in James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness leads to godliness. It describes that attitude of mind which respects man, and honors God. It is a life so devoted to God that it maintains a right behavior towards others and a right relationship towards God. Godliness is both seen in your vertical relationship and your horizontal relationships. Oh, that's a man or a woman of godliness. It's not just in their pious devotion, but it's in their treatment of others. It's in their love of those that they come in contact with. Godliness requires the avoidance of sin and the love of brothers and sisters. 
So brotherly affection would come after that. This is a love for the brethren, a love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a love that goes beyond words, that expresses kindness and generosity and courtesy. It's a love that makes church a family more than a function. Listen, we lag this, don't we, in a lot of ways? Church, church has become a function. It's become a thing that you attend, a place that you go. Listen, church is a family to belong to. My desire for many of you is that it would be a New Testament church. It would be a family. It would be a place where you're encouraged, a place where you're equipped, a place where you're, you're brought together and then sent out with mission. And that there would be such brotherly affection that takes place because we treat one another with courtesy and kindness and love and leading towards agape love, this unconditional sacrificial love. This is the love that is not so much driven by human affection but driven by God and displayed through full action. Agape love is a love that sacrifices for the benefit of someone else. Can you see how this would be the things that we should pursue after we have faith in God? That we would become more complete? That we would paddle harder towards areas so that we could see God producing us something that we are incapable of producing on our own? It says, verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's time to do a little check. Let me remind you, we don't work for salvation. We work from salvation. So let me remind you, godly character is not a result of our efforts. Godly character is not a result of our efforts. Godly character is the result of Christ in us. Therefore, make every effort to bring godly character to the surface of your life. If he has done a work in you, do everything you can to bring it to the surface. If he's changed your heart, let's see it in our actions, right? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ineffective literally means without work, without labor, doing nothing. James, again, would say faith without works is dead. Or your verbal faith is ineffective in your daily actions, and therefore it is not profitable for you if you do not put forth effort or cooperation. It's basically saying you're ineffective in your faith because there is no action to match what you say. Or you're unfruitful. It's a failure to practice what we know from God's word, leading inevitably to fruitless faith, while life ceases to produce the fruit of God because you have severed yourself from the vine. It is the idea of not abiding. Abiding takes constant awareness because I, I would much rather find myself pulling away from Christ than I would staying connected to Christ. So my abiding, I'm going to keep the vine connected so that he could produce in me something that I cannot produce on my own. So if these qualities are yours, are they yours? Are they increasing or are they ineffective? For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Nearsighted. Now recently I've had to start wearing my glasses on Sundays. And I've always been nearsighted. I've not been able to see very far since I was a kid. But recently, in times, I've got to where I can't see up close either. So it's all just kind of mixing together. So 
I know what it's like to be so nearsighted that all I can see is what's close. Everything else is kind of a blur, and so I'm just going to focus on what's close, and now I just struggle to focus. So this is the idea, spiritually speaking, that instead of seeking the kingdom of heaven, you're so nearsighted that you're focused on your kingdom preferences and passions. So you just look down at earthly pursuits, overlooking upward towards a heavenly calling and God's purpose. It becomes nearsighted. I'm so focused on me that I have forgotten to seek after God. Another effect of being nearsighted is to forget the severity of your sin and begin to indulge in the very things that you sought forgiveness from in the first place. How often is it that as we look at this idea of apostasy in Second Peter, that there were some who made a pro- of faith, and then as time went on, they began to go right back to the very things that they had sought forgiveness from. We see it today, don't we? We see it in a world that, oh, I want salvation, I want to be forgiven, I want to one day go to heaven, and yet, before too long, they become so nearsighted that they've sunk back into the very things that they once participated in. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Peter writes here, he writes for us to confirm, to have certainty of our calling and our election. So here's the question. If you are ineffective, unfruitful, and nearsighted in your faith walk, what assurance Or confirmation do you have that you have ever been truly saved? Do you know that you know that you know? Has it become evident in the way that God has changed you from the inside out? Confirm your calling and election. As 2 Peter 1.9 says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We who are called have been called to a holy calling. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God shows you as firstfruits from the, big, from the very beginning, through sanctification by the Spirit, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work and belief in the truth, because what you believe determines what you do. I heard one Guys say what you believe is what you do. Everything else is just religious talk. So what is the first evidence? The first evidence that you are among the elect of God is that you have believed in Christ as Savior and Lord. Let me ask you, have you believed? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Appointed to eternal life, they believed. Has your belief changed the way you live? Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And this, the Greek stresses the human involvement, man's responsibility, and the demonstration of our divine election. So Peter is imploring us to do something in order to make our election and calling confirmed in our own experiences. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into eternal kingdom 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word means to fall into misery, to become wretched. If a person is elect and they are supplementing their faith with these spiritual graces, then they never have to worry about being a false Christian or a person who is headed towards spiritual apostasy. So let me ask you, has your belief changed your life? Have you been able to see that God's divine power has given you everything you need towards a life of godliness? It's not that you are perfect, but that you see that there is a progression in your life. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do not run aimlessly. Paddle hard towards supplementing your faith with these virtues. Do not disqualify yourself. Do not disqualify your witness in the eyes of others, but confirm your calling by showing that God is changing you from one degree of glory to the next.